Remember this? Our scattered sermon series on 1 Peter. It's been since the end of November since we have been in 1 Peter. So I will, I will obviously forgive you if you don't remember it. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2. And the way this just happened to work is that I came across a passage and I'm like, this is all about gospel submission, but there's no way we could get it all in one Sunday. So I split it into two parts and then we did part one and then, you know, this little thing called Christmas happened and uh, we took the month of December off. So this is part two. I hope you remember everything from that last sermon. I don't remember everything from that sermon, so it's really okay if you don't. But I do want to go back over a bit of the context of 1 Peter to help you understand why or how we're looking at this passage and understand where Peter is coming from. I've called the series Scattered because that's the word in the NIV, at least, that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces. And then he lists several provinces of Rome. So... Peter is writing to a group of people that have received the gospel, accepted the gospel, become Christians, and yet they are living in a culture that does not in any way support what they believe. In fact, uh, we talked about the history of the Roman Empire that while Rome at the beginning was somewhat okay with Christianity, as time goes on, the tide turns against the Christians. They are looked upon with greater skepticism, Uh, eventually persecution, widespread and and severe persecution will break out. 1 Peter is written shortly before that. Some of the Christians are looking at the way things are going and saying this could and probably will get much worse. And Peter is writing to these people to say, in this culture you're living in, as these people are looking at you thinking you're crazy for trusting this Jesus guy, You're crazy for believing in somebody that died on the cross and then rose from the dead. And he's writing to them saying, hold on to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you can see the parallels with us today. I don't know what the future brings, but increasingly our culture is looking at us like we're a bit strange. We're kind of crazy. We're believing in Jesus, this fairy tale. Not only that, but they're starting to look at us with accusations. Well, how dare you believe that? Because that's saying that others are wrong. How dare you hold on to biblical definitions of right and wrong? Marriage, male and female. Who do you think you are, you troublemakers? They were facing the same things that we're facing today. We are still, in many ways, exiles scattered in the world in a culture that doesn't support what we believe. And what we've talked about is we can sit around and wring our hands and say, oh, what was us? Nobody likes us. We used to have so much power and prestige, which we really didn't. We just thought we did. We used to be so important. We really weren't. We just thought we were. And and we can sit around and complain and whine, or we can say, Jesus Christ is still on his throne. It's never changed. The gospel is still the only way of salvation. That's never changed. We have been called to an eternal inheritance that nothing in all of history can ever take away from us. That has never changed. What do we have to complain about? No, rather, we have something to demonstrate and offer to this world that is so desperately looking for hope. And yet, in our very complaining, in our nervousness, we are basically saying, we're not even sure we believe the gospel. 
So if we're not even sure we believe the gospel, how can we expect the culture to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so Peter addresses his readers as God's elect and exiles. He reminds them in chapter 1, verse 3, that they have a living hope. But in verse 6, he also says, you're going to and are beginning to go through suffering. Trust in Jesus Christ is not opposite to suffering in this world. Contrary to what very many popular preachers and televangelists and authors are saying today, following Jesus does not mean that we get to escape all suffering. In fact, Peter is actually saying the opposite. If you truly believe in Jesus, people are going to think you're weird and they're, they're going to suspect you of a lot of things and they might even and probably will turn against you in some ways. But he goes on to say we have a great salvation. We are called to be holy. And then he talks about at the end of chapter 1, we are called to love one another deeply. This gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, comes into this particular society, the early Roman society. And it radically transforms how people saw themselves. But it also raised a lot of questions. How were these people who were now Christians believing in Jesus Christ, how were they to continue to live in the world around them? The emperor at this time was a total nutcase. He was off his rocker. And he would get worse. I mean, he was bad then, but he was about to get much, much worse. We shared stories of of Emperor Nero who would one day begin to have parties and he would light his parties by impaling Christians on poles and lighting them on fire just for a little ambiance. That's the kind of crazy guy that they were living under. And yet Peter wrote to them and said in chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. He says, okay, you have a new citizenship in heaven. You have a new calling. You have a new identity. So does that mean you get to just scoff at the emperor and say, I don't care about you. You're a loser. I don't need to obey you. And Peter says, no. Your attitude toward him needs to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now he's going to get even more personal. In chapter 2, verses 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 7, we have one of several things in Scripture known as a household code. Kind of a rules for relationship. How does a Roman household work? This was a common theme throughout the Roman Empire. They would lay out how things were to work. The household was the most basic unit of of the Roman society. The household was comprised of the husband, who ruled the household, the wife, who was under the husband's authority, but over everybody else in the household, the children, and then the slaves. So, So it's not what we would call like your typical home family unit, you know, the nuclear family. It's a little bit bigger depending on how wealthy the person was. The slaves were the lowest of the low. No authority, no voice whatsoever. Husband, wife, I mean, to some degree, even the children at a certain point, they said it, the slaves had to do it, that's just the way it was. The children, and Peter doesn't actually deal with the children, Paul does in other places, children were under the authority of the mother and under the authority of the husband and somehow, sometimes under the delegated authority of their tutors, which would often be a servant. And then the husband was the absolute lord of the house. It was crucial throughout the Roman society for people to learn to live according to their station in life. Know who you are, 
live there. Don't try to be something you're not. That was Roman society. Please don't hear that I'm saying this is the Christian message. This was how they thought. Servants needed to be servants. When servants tried to be something other than servants, bad things happened. Okay? This was how the Roman society held together. And in order to hold it together, these lists were made, household codes. And they would dictate how people were to act, how the wives were to act, how the slaves were to act, how the children were to act, how the husband were to act, was to act. Interestingly, we have some of these lists in Scripture from a Christian point of view. Paul has a few. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is one. Colossians 3 is another. And then we have this one from Peter, written to the church. Answering the question, now that you're a Christian, does that mean you just get to throw out all of your previous obligations? Does it mean you get to throw off every authority because now you're under God's ultimate authority? Does it mean you're completely free from everything and you can live however you want? And Peter will say, no, that's not the case at all. It's interesting, though. These passages so often by modern people are read in Scripture and thought to be very abusive. How can you uphold these things? How can you support these things? Where if you understand their culture, these are radically different. You see, household codes in the Roman culture were written to the husbands on how to teach the wife to stay in line, how to teach the children, how to teach the servants to stay in line. Because you don't instruct the servants. They can't learn. That was their mentality. They can't learn. It's the husband's job to just tell them what to do. You can't instruct the wife. The wife can't learn. She's under the role of the husband. You tell the husband, and he tells everybody else. Peter's about to turn that on its head. And so does Paul. You see, when they write a household code, when they write instructions, they write to the servant as someone who can make decisions, as someone who can be saved by Jesus Christ and is responsible for their own actions. There is an incredible dignity and worth given even to the lowest of the low in Roman society simply by addressing them as a human being. It's radical. Now, we struggle because we're in a very different culture. So we read it with our cultural glasses on. I want to try to help us to get into their culture to understand how they saw these things. Now, one of the things we have to understand is the authority of the husband. In their culture, the household worship was completely dictated by the husband. If the husband woke up one day and said, hey, I used to worship Zeus or Jupiter, and now I worship Artemis. Well, guess who everybody in the house had to worship, period, unquestioningly. Their new god or goddess was whoever the husband said. So if I'm, well, I am, right, the man of the house, if I say I'm going to worship Artemis, well, my wife is now a devout believer in Artemis because I say so. My kids are now devout believers in Artemis because I say so. Even my servants have to worship my god or my goddess. This is the way their culture worked. Now you might think, okay, well, fine, that's kind of obscure. It's not the way we are today. But imagine this situation. A servant comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have an obligation to worship their master's god or goddess. But they now believe there's only one true God, and Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. This puts them in direct conflict with their master. What are they to do? A woman becomes a Christian. 
she wants to, in loving submission, live under her, her husband's authority. But at the same time, she wants to go and gather with other believers. She wants to go out of the house and worship. And we'll look at that in a moment. That even that was a radical idea that she could even leave the house without her husband and go have other friends. This was absurd. It was unheard of. And it would bring shame on her husband. Publicly shame her husband for her to worship something other than what her her husband worshipped. In this passage, Peter's going to answer some questions that were very important to them. And while we might struggle because we don't have some of the same questions, I hope we can see the way these applied to them and how they still apply to us today. Now, let's start with the servants. And I've called this section Submitting in Imperfect Circumstances. Slavery is a messed up thing. We need to understand that Roman slavery was not the same as what we think of as slavery and what happened in America. Still not good, still not great, but it's not the same. So we can't just take our ideas, put it on that, and condemn it, okay? We need to enter into their world and understand what was going on. Roman slaves were usually those who were conquered in war or those who sold themselves or their children into slavery to pay off their debts. It was actually a form of welfare in their society. It was a way to take care of those who no longer could take care of themselves. I'm not saying it was good. It was often brutal. Slaves lost all of their rights. They were completely under the authority of the head of their household who literally had power over their life and death and everyday circumstances. And I'm sure many of the masters were awful. I would hope some of them were good. But the servants and the slaves were a necessary part in Rome of their everyday life. About 25 to 35% of the people living in the Roman Empire were slaves. That's how widespread it was. And you can imagine if those slaves started thinking, hey, we don't want to be slaves anymore, well, that's going to cause a lot of problems. And so there's this question among the Romans, hey, these people are accepting Jesus. Are they going to rise up? What are they being taught? What are they being told? And we get a glimpse into what Peter is teaching them. And so let's read this. Starting in verse 18, let me read down through verse 25. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of, or overseer of your souls. And so he, first of all, like I said, he addresses the slaves as human beings. That was a radical notion in and of itself. They were considered less than human. And yet Peter talks to them as individuals and real people. 
right away we hit a difficulty. If you have a translation other than the NIV, the beginning of verse 18 is very different. The NIV says, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters. Other translations, such as the English Standard Version, says, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, and there's no mention of God whatsoever. That's a big difference. (laughs) When you come across passages like that where different translations have a pretty profound difference, you have to ask what's going on. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but this problem struck me. Because the NIV is saying you are submitting to God. The ESV is saying you are to submit to your earthly master. Those are very different things. So who's right? The problem is the word for master in Greek is the same word that's translated often as Lord in English. And it is used of Jesus. And it is used of God. It is also what they would have used of an earthly master. So you can see a little bit of the confusion Does this word mean submission to God as their ultimate Lord, or is it talking about submission to their earthly masters? The NIV takes the stance of both, that Peter is implying both. And I think they're right in that. However, the ESV and other translations are actually more accurate in their translation. Now, let me just briefly help you to understand what Peter is doing here. Go back to chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Peter is applying that even to the slaves who were nobodies. He's saying, look at who you are through Jesus Christ. You are a new people group claimed by God of worth to him. Skip forward to verses 16 and 17. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter is redefining their understanding of authority in the Roman world. He is saying your ultimate authority, slave, is not your master. Your ultimate authority, slave, is not even the emperor. He's saying your ultimate authority is God. Your entire relationship with your world needs to be transformed by the understanding you serve a higher master. So Peter is clearly saying that, and I believe the NIV is trying to bring that into this passage when they say in reverent fear of God. Further, in our passage, if you go down to verses 21 to 25, he says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you. And he goes on to talk about their attitude should be the same as that of Christ's. So Peter's point is that our relationship with God, being under God's authority, is what redefines our relationship with every other authority in our life. So in that sense, I do believe the NIV and the ESV are both correct, just in different ways. How's that for a political answer? Slaves are called by Peter to submit to their earthly masters. Their new identity in Christ does not mean that they get to walk away from being a slave. Now that's hard. Some of these masters were not good people. 
In fact, Peter even specifically says that their submission does not depend on the rightness or the fairness of the authority. We live in a world today that we want to be able to say, well, if the one in authority over me is wrong, then I get to do something else. I'm released from that. The authority is always conditional. Peter says, no, you must submit to them, even to the point of suffering. He says, if you live in rebellion, if you rise up against your master, if you ignore what they're doing and you suffer for it, what good is that? He says, but if you try to serve your master out of love for Jesus Christ, and you still suffer, and understand it, the suffering here is more than likely because the master is looking at them and saying, you foolish Christian, how dare you worship somebody other than me? How dare you believe in that fairy tale? And they're being punished, probably even physically for it. And Peter is saying, guess what? You slave who everybody thinks you're nothing, the Son of God did the same thing for you. And I love that in this passage, and he's going to apply the attitude of Jesus to everyone, the the slave, the wife, and the husband, as Paul equally does to the children also. But I love that he includes it in the slave passage. It's like he's saying, you slave that are treated as nothing, understand that Christ came just like you. He suffered just like you. And if the Son of God would do that for you, cannot you have that attitude because you belong to a greater master? Peter takes this idea of suffering as being something that demonstrates the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at 21 to 25. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is pulling quotes right out of the prophet Isaiah. And he is walking through them like a master preacher and using each quote and pointing to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah and how they are a prophecy of Jesus who were or was to come. We get that from Peter. Peter is the one that made the link here. That passage points to Jesus Christ. They struggled to understand that. How could there be a Messiah that would suffer? And Peter says, I get it. Now, if you know a little bit about Peter's life and his relationship with Christ, that's kind of shocking. Do you remember what Peter did when Jesus came to his disciples and said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die? And Peter went, yeah, that totally fulfills the suffering servant passage of Isaiah. Is that what Peter said? Peter said, no. If I put it into my translation, it's basically him saying, Jesus, I will never let that happen to you. Or, to put it another way, Jesus, you're wrong. And what did Jesus say to him? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. 
This is Matthew chapter 16. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, Peter had this mindset just like everybody else, just like we still have today. Well, if I trust God, everything should go better. I won't have to suffer. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to suffer. And Peter goes, that doesn't compute. And then Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 to 25, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Do you think those words had a big impact on Peter? I think it radically changed everything he thought he knew about Jesus. I think it radically changed everything he thought he knew about having a relationship with Christ. And I think we see this right here when he's addressing the lowest of the lows. He's saying, man, I learned something and I want to share it with you. The Son of God came to suffer. And there is no higher calling than to demonstrate the beauty and the glory and the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ than to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. American church, we have got to listen to the passages on suffering in the New Testament. We are called to it. We've got to quit being surprised at it. I'm not saying run out and ask for it. I'm not saying rise up against the government so that suffering comes. Just understand we live in a world that does not believe what we believe. And that's okay. God has taken care of his people throughout the ages, especially and even through suffering. And so Peter calls the slaves and he says to them, it's okay to suffer for Jesus because he suffered for you. He takes all of this and he applies it to the lowest of lows in the society. He treats them as real people with dignity, the ability to make real choices, who lived in a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This was completely contrary to the Roman view on servants and slaves. Friends, no matter how insignificant you feel, no matter how much other people look at you and reject you for your faith, you need to know that the greatest authority in heaven and on earth, the Son of God chose to suffer and die to save you. Peter's not saying that slavery is right. What he is saying is that it's an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, I believe, is one of the most important secrets to living the Christian life. Constantly asking ourselves, how do I show Christ in this? Not how do I get out of it. How do I show Christ? Even if the situation is wrong, even if it's completely messed up, we can still demonstrate the character and nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how does this apply to us? I think the most basic application for Roman slavery is our relationship with employers. It's not exactly the same, thankfully. But there are some applications. Think about your attitude toward your employer, toward your boss. Is it a demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are we more interested in being right and being heard? 
Would people look at the way you speak of others, the way you treat others, even if they're wrong, and say, I see Jesus in that? That's hard. Now, this does not mean that we are to take abuse. I want to be very careful. We're not to take abuse in the workforce. Hopefully your bosses aren't beating you up. But when we get to women and wives, we need to deal with that very particularly. Peter is not saying that. I am not saying that. And in our world today, thank goodness, our bosses don't have the absolute authority over us that they did in the ancient world. But we must not go so far and buy into the modern notion that our attitude and our actions are always dependent on the attitude of actions of others. Our attitude and actions are dependent on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's move on to wives. Peter raises this issue of how Jesus submitted to suffering. And he says, look at your Savior. Demonstrate that. And now he's going to turn to the wives. Wives, in the same way, this is chapter 3, verse 1, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, some of you are looking at rings and necklaces. Cover it up. Okay. Again, we're, we're, we're jumping into an ancient world here. Different standards, different cultures. We're trying to look at what, what still applies in the same way. Okay. And I'm taking this as a larger understanding of of how we submit to other authorities with the motivation of displaying Christ. And he's entering into the woman's world, and it wasn't all that different back then. They wanted to look beautiful. Now, in that case, specifically, it wasn't just looking beautiful for the woman's sake. It was to bring honor to her husband. Her dress, her makeup, her everything was to bring honor on her husband. She was to display the honor of her husband. And there were all these rules and regulations. You can wear this much, but don't go too far because then you look like another woman of the night and that's not good. And, and actually, they didn't put a whole lot of stock in makeup because they were supposed to look naturally beautiful. And so Peter's entering into all of this and saying, now what about the gospel in this? The wife had a lot of authority in the house, but really no authority outside the house, in society. Listen to the words of Roman writer Plutarch, who was alive when 1 Peter was written. He wrote this. Again, this is a Greek or Roman philosopher. This isn't scripture. Please understand that. A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all strange rituals and outlandish superstitions. 
Okay, so that's a pagan Roman, uh, he was actually a biographer and historian. And he's writing these words, and they're a good summary of Roman society. Now imagine a woman becomes a Christian. So she's already worshiping another god, other than her husband. She knows the church is gathering for worship, so she gets up, gets dressed, and she's going to walk out of her house without her husband. She's going to go to people that her husband doesn't know. And she's going to hang out with them. Think for a moment in that society, if a woman got all dressed up and went out to hang out with other people, what would they think? It was scandalous. It was absolutely scandalous. And it was shameful. It made the husband look awful for the woman to do this. Now imagine this Christian woman wanting to do the right thing, but knowing she's going to bring shame on her husband. And it's very interesting what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, go to church no matter what it does to your husband. He doesn't say that. He equally doesn't say, don't go to church, stay home and honor your husband. What he does is give parameters. And I believe he's telling these women in these difficult situations, you need to discern in your situation how you're going to bring glory to God and how you're going to some way submit to your husband. And it might look different for all of you. Look at what he says. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husband. In the same way as the servant. Now, that's not to say it looks exactly like the servant, but he's saying with the same motivation. Consider the fact that your identity is in Jesus Christ. The Son of God came to serve us, die on the cross, a brutal, horrific slave's death. And that's your identity. So take that attitude and now live it out with your husband in the same way. Submit. Somehow, some way, live under your husband's authority. But Peter adds a twist. The purpose of the wife's submission is to win the husband to Christ, to be a display of the gospel, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Some of you here today have unbelieving spouses. And I know it's a struggle often. What do I do? How do I convince them? How do I turn them? I hope you hear the the power and the hope of this passage. Live out your faith. Trust in God. And watch how He will work. You are a living, breathing demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's hard. That's a high calling. Peter goes on to reference Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham had some crazy plans in the Old Testament that involved Sarah, not always to her benefit. Long story short, she submitted. And he talks about, before that, the jewelry and the hairstyles. And what he's saying is, You are to reflect the glory of your master. And your ultimate master is Jesus Christ. Live that life. Focus there. Peter's making the same basic points for wives that he made with slaves. You have a higher authority. You've been called by the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. Submit yourself to God through Christ. He says, you have a new mission. Live to demonstrate the gospel. So what about today? Women, and I want to make this abundantly clear. There is nothing in Scripture 
that can should ever be used to justify physical abuse. Ever. That is not what submission is. Even in the Roman world, the husbands were not allowed to beat their wives. It was considered shameful. Peter doesn't deal with it because he doesn't have to. They all accepted that. If you're in an abusive relationship where your husband is hurting you, get out, get help, find shelter. I want to be very clear on that because too often this has been used to justify that. And I want to stand very clearly and say, no, that is not what it's saying. But if you have a husband who does not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, ask yourself, does my attitude and my actions toward him display the gospel? Am I submitting in such a way that I'm pointing him to Jesus Christ? And for all of us, keep the gospel first. Focus on your attitude and your actions displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, Husbands, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, Peter does not use the word submission here for husbands. And I think that's important. I think there's a general submission. He's saying in the same way. So what he's saying is you are still submitting to God in how you are carrying out your authority in your house. So that's what I'm using here, submitting when exercise authority. What he does not say to the husband is, give up your authority in the house. He says, no, now use your authority as an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, be considerate. This is not a hallmark greeting, hey, just be nice and think of others. This is a radical notion. The Roman husband did not need to consider anybody for anything. And for Peter to tell the Christian husband, hey, when you make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, understand your wife's heart might be different. Understand your servant's heart might be different. Consider them. That was a revolutionary notion to them. He says, don't just keep doing what you're doing. Consider the implications of the gospel for others. And then he says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Men, don't say amen to that, okay? Just don't get in trouble. I mean, that's kind of an ouch phrase, right? Like, weaker? Come on. Now, he's using the Roman way of looking at women. Women were to stay home. The men were to go off to battle. They were to go out into the fields. They were the ones that were stronger. This was just what they accepted. Things are a little different today. Okay, it's okay. But it's more than that, because it's not just physical weakness. The woman was weak in society. If the man kicked the woman out of the house, she was in big trouble. If the man brought shame on the woman, she was in big trouble. He was her protection in society. Without him, she was helpless and weak. And so Peter is saying to the husband, you have a responsibility for her. Be considerate of her. Care for her. Even if she disagrees with you, demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ to her and treat her as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Peter's saying to the husbands, don't forget, Jesus died for her too. She means something to God. Whether your wife is a Christian or not, Jesus died for her. Your job is to point your wife to Jesus Christ. 
And then he ends, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It was expected in their society that husbands would pray to whatever deity they worshipped on behalf of the family and that that would greatly benefit the household and uphold Roman society. But Peter is coming in and saying, if you don't demonstrate the gospel to your household, don't think for a moment that God has to answer your prayers. That is a strong statement. So what do we do today? Husbands, are we demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way we treat our household, specifically our wives? To those in authority, are we demonstrating the gospel in the way we treat those under our authority? The gospel does not eliminate authority. The husband was never called to give up his authority, but rather to change how he carried it out so that it was now a demonstration of the gospel. It is very sad that Scripture's teaching on social roles is often seen as upholding oppression and abuse. It was anything but. The oppression and the abuse was going on. This teaching radically changed it. The Roman culture would have seen Peter's words so different. In one sense, they were completely revolutionary. You submit to a higher authority for a greater purpose, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In another sense, the words weren't revolutionary at all. He's saying to the slaves, you're not out to change slavery. You're not out to change Roman society. You are there to submit to Jesus Christ. Sometimes as Christians, I think that we believe it's our job to change the world. That's God's job. It's our job to live for the gospel of Jesus Christ. To submit and even to suffer. And the profound truth is that when the gospel is on display, people believe in the gospel and they are changed. Then they display the gospel. Other people see it, believe in the gospel, and they are changed. So yes, it actually changes the world. But it changes the world from the inside out. So ask yourself, do you see yourself in all circumstances as a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And is that what people see when they look at us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a high calling, a difficult passage, a difficult truth. But Father, it's so necessary in our society that upholds the self as the most important aspect of society. Our culture that trains us from youth to seek our own happiness, regardless of how it impacts anybody around us. That everybody has to change for us. Father, may we live differently. May we who believe you sent your son to die to suffer in our place, to take our sin, to raise from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe. May we declare that truth through our very attitude and our actions as we submit to those around us. Even in difficult and sometimes circumstances that cause suffering. And I pray that as we have that attitude, others would take notice. That the unbelieving spouse would take notice and fall to their knees and praise and worship Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
that the culture would look at us and see something completely different than anything this world has to offer. And they would say, I want to know this Jesus that I see in your life. We pray this in his gracious and powerful name. Amen.